In September 2008, uh, a Category 2 storm, Hurricane Ike, made its way through the Gulf of Mexico before slamming into the coast of Texas. This is a picture of the storm. You can see it was a massive storm. Uh, this is a picture from space, and you can see it kind of spread out throughout the Gulf there. It was a Category 2 storm, but still did a lot significant amount of damage. Now, uh, one of the things that it did is damage-wise, you know, they, they rate the hurricane systems based on the wind, two, three, four, five, the more wind. So it was only a category two, so there was not a lot of wind, but at the same time, the storm surge that Ike brought in was tremendous. Now, if you would have gone to Galveston just a couple weeks before this storm hit, you would have seen something more like this. You'd have seen a beautiful beach full of houses and people enjoying the final days of their summer vacation, right? Getting ready for school. It's in near Houston, so it's still 2,000 degrees, right? But they're, they're enjoying it and the, the humidity and soaking up the sun. But then just a couple weeks later, this. Just utter devastation. Just the, the entire island, this entire beach is just leveled flat. Just everything is gone. Well, everything except this little yellow house in the corner. You ever notice at the beach, they're always like yellow houses, like there's, that's just the thing. But there's this yellow house, everything else is a wasteland, everything else is gone, but this yellow house remains. I look at this picture and the, the curious person in me looks at this picture and says, why? Why did that house survive and stay standing while all the rest fell and were in ruins? What was different about that house? Why did it survive? Why did it weather the storm? Why did it stand when all others failed? Why did it exist when everything else fell into crumbles and pieces and was gone? I wonder the same thing about us as human beings at times too. Why is it that, that two people or, or two families can go through the same difficult season or storm of life and one comes through, one person or one family comes through still standing, still strong. And the other, their life and their family are in ruins and disrepair. Why? What causes one to survive and the others to fall? If you have your Bibles with you this morning, you can turn to Matthew chapter seven. Matthew chapter seven is where we'll be. If you don't have a Bible this morning, but you have the Mount app, you can, you can go into the app there and you can find all the, the scripture references and the, the sermon notes there as well. Or maybe you're joining us for the first time and you're like, I'm not sure I'm committed to this. I don't wanna download an app yet. I get it, iPhone storage is important. You can just follow along with the things on the screen with us as well. But while you're turning there, allow me to introduce myself. My name is Adam and I'm the lead pastor here at the Mount. And I'm excited this weekend to start a new series titled, There's More to the Story. And what we're gonna be doing over the next month or so is we're gonna be looking at these specific stories in scripture known as parables, these things that Jesus spoke or taught. We find these in the first four books of the New Testament, otherwise known as the Gospels. You have Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, the four Gospels. Now, uh, for those of you that have, that have been around or wrestled with scripture for a while, you know this, but some of us may be new. One of the things that stands out in scripture is Jesus, who lived 2,000 years ago, a couple thousand years ago, he came as God to, to human form on earth and lived his life. And after 30 years of kind of living and growing up, he decided to do his ministry. And what marks his ministry in scripture, what we see over and over again, the way scripture decides or describes his ministry is it says that Jesus came preaching and teaching. 
Sure, he, he healed people. He did miracles. These are, these are all things he did. They're all a part of his ministry. They're all important things. But scripture tells us that his focus, his, his primary thing he came was preaching and teaching the kingdom of God and how lost people can find salvation through that. Now, it's interesting when Jesus came preaching and teaching the thing he did so much, he frequently told in stories. But Jesus was pretty smart. He knew this about his human beings, that there is something about stories that we connect to, right? We, we love a good story. We, we love a good book that turns the pages and we wanna just keep reading. We love a good movie when we can go and see it and kind of be on the edge of our seat and it draws us in. There's something about stories that causes the emotions inside of us, even if we aren't an emotional person, to come out. Words, stories have a way of describing in words things that we feel deep inside. Stories connect us. This makes sense. When, when my kids were younger, when Micah and Emerson were younger, they would never at bedtime say, hey, Dad, can you tell me a fact today? <laughs> Maybe your kids are really smart like that. My kids were like, hey, Dad, can you tell me a story? My youngest, Micah, always wanted me to make up my own stories about random things, so I made up Lord of the Rings, and he had no idea until he was older, right? My, my oldest son, his thing was, Dad, tell me stories about when you were a kid. He wanted to know what it was like to, before the internet when you had to actually watch commercials. He wanted to know what it was like before you had a cell phone and you had to carry around a pager. He wanted to know what the stories were like. Why? Because those stories revealed who I was where I came from, what I valued, what I cherished, what I sought after. And we know this. When we meet someone for coffee or for lunch or if we meet a casual business acquaintance, what are the things we ask them? Tell me about yourself. What do you, what do you, what do, you do? Where are you from? What, tell me your story. We wanna know because stories connect us. In fact, if, if we were to look back over our life, what we'd find out is that most of the significant moments in our lives happened in a story form. We, we tell them, we, we, we describe them in a story way. We don't just say, this happened on this day. No, 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 we, we tell what we felt that day. We tell what we were doing. We tell the story because they capture our attention. Our significant moments in life are linked to stories. So Jesus came preaching and teaching, and one of the most consistent ways that he did this was through stories. And Jesus' most famous stories are what we call parables. A parable, if you know nothing about a parable, you've probably heard some of the language. His, his stories were so famous, his parables were so famous, that even people who have no concept of Jesus still say things like a good Samaritan or a prodigal. Why? Because his stories have permeated culture. Jesus loved to teach in parables. In fact, what we see in scripture is that over and over and over again, parables were the primary means of how he communicated to his people. If you look back in, in the, the first four books of the New Testament, the four gospels, what we see is that over 30%, around a third of what Jesus said was told in a parable form, a story. Parables are significant. In fact, I would argue that to fully understand Jesus, you have to understand his parables. Trying to, to understand him without understanding the parables is, trying, is like seeing the, the end of the movie without seeing the beginning. You have to know the context. And so what are parables? And I'll just give you kind of the, the most basic definition I can give you. A parable is an earthly story with a heavenly meaning. 
It's an earthly story with a heavenly meaning. Remember, when we talk about scripture and we talk about the Bible, context matters. And so Jesus was, was speaking to a first century Jewish audience living in first century Palestine. And so what he did was he told stories about things that they experienced in everyday life, like planting seeds and building buildings and doing these and walking on a road and all of these things. But what he did is he took these earthly stories, these things that they, they experienced in their common everyday life, and he told them in such a way that left you wondering, is there more to the story? There must be some eternal heavenly meaning to what he is saying. And ultimately what Jesus was doing was he was telling parables to help us, you and I, all of us, whether we follow Jesus or not, to know what it means to live in the kingdom of God in the here and now. You see, sometimes we, we mistake these parables to be things that happen later. No, no, no. They were all related to the here and now and what it means to live in God's kingdom. And so in Matthew chapter seven, we're gonna pick up at the end of a long section where Jesus has been teaching. This teaching is often referred to as the, the Sermon on the Mount. It's sort of the, like the greatest sermon ever preached, right? Like it's, it's, it's long, but it's, it's so good. It's called the Sermon on the Mount because he's, he's teaching it from a mount, a mountain, this place overlooking the Sea of Galilee. Uh, Luke calls it the, the Sermon on the Plain, which is very similar. But the way he would stand is this mountain kind of place, and you would have the perfect acoustics where you didn't have to have a microphone, and he could speak, and the crowd gathered would hear him. And the crowd gathered that day was large. It was quite large. It began with his inner circle and just kept growing and growing and growing. And so Jesus, for the chapters of Matthew 5, Matthew chapter 6, and Matthew chapter 7, spends three chapters giving them moral instruction on what it means to live in the kingdom of God. And he's talking to a Jewish audience and he's telling them, hey, all the things you thought about following God, all those surface level things, let's take them deeper and talk about your heart. Let's go deeper, not just the act of obedience on the outside, but the deeper on the inside. And at the, at the end of this sermon, at the end of these three chapters, he, he, he tells the people they have some choices. And he gives them what I'm gonna call three sets of two. And he says, first, you, you have a choice. You, you've heard everything I've said for the past three chapters. He didn't say chapters, but you get the point. He said, you've heard everything I've said for the past three chapters. Now you have a choice. The first set of two is you can either take the wide road or the narrow road. You can take the, the easy road, the, the less difficult road, or you can take the harder road of following me. And then he gives them another choice to illustrate his point. He says another set of choices would be you can be the, the tree that bears bad fruit or the tree that bears good fruit. The choice is yours. And then he gets to his third choice. And we're gonna pick up in verse 21, and you can, you can see this. It says, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven but only the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. Many will say to me on that day, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and in your name drive out demons and in your name perform many miracles? Well, then I will tell them plainly, I never knew you. Away from me, you evildoers. So Jesus is saying, hey, there's gonna be some of you and you're gonna, you're gonna come to me. You, you, you've heard all of these chapters of my teaching. You've heard all of these things and you're gonna come to me and you're gonna say, Lord, Lord, we love you. We, we profess to follow you. We, we believe in you. And he's gonna say, you don't, you don't know me. But we, we, we cast out demons. We perform miracles. We worked for you. We, we outwardly did everything we were supposed to do to be able to follow you. And we've even professed with our life. We have, no, 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 you, you don't know me. And to illustrate this point, he gets to kind of the, the final moment of his sermon, right? The part where the band would come out and start playing behind him and kind of set the mood. And he says, listen, 
I'm gonna give you the practical application here, the, 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 the point where you have to make the decision, and look at what he says, verse 24. He says, therefore, and so the, the parable begins. Therefore, everyone who hears these words of mine and puts them into practice is like a wise man who built his house on the rock. The rain came down, the, steam, the streams rose, and the winds blew and beat against that house. Yet it did not fall, because it had its foundation on the rock. But everyone who hears these words of mine and does not put them into practice is like a foolish man who built his house on sand. The rain came down, and the streams rose, and the winds blew and beat against that house, and it fell with a great crash." In Luke's telling of the, this, this passage, uh, the parallel account, he, he kind of changes part of the beginning and he adds this. I love this. This is verse 46 in chapter six. He says, why do you call me Lord, Lord, and do not do what I say? So Jesus tells this story, this parable, about these two people, these two builders who are building houses. Now, let's just pause, because there are some, some similarities in these two builders, and there are some differences. So let's, let's look at the similarities first. And first, if you're taking notes, they both dreamed the same vision. They both dreamed the same vision. We're told they both wanted to build a house or a, a life. Uh, you, you see, for us, a house is more of a commodity, right? Like a house is something, uh, someone who recently moved, a house is something we sell and we buy. We, we find the right neighborhood, we find the right house, we find the right yard, we find the right city, the right whatever it is we're looking for. And if we don't like it, we can always sell it and buy a new one. We can trade up, we can trade down, we can downsize, we can grow as our family grows. Whatever we do, a house is a commodity. For a first century uh, Palestinian though, a house was not a commodity, a house was their life. For most people, especially the males in the home, they would have grown up in the same house for all of their life. It's where all of their memories are, all of their stories are. It's where everything they think about their life is in that house. It's where they, they had their birthdays. It's where they, they celebrated funerals. It's where they celebrated weddings. It's where everything was. As they got older, when they themselves began to think about marriage, the parties were thrown in the house. The, everything that dealt with the marriage, the planning, the, the ceremony, everything was done in the house. As they began to get closer to marriage, the father would go and build a new room onto his house so that his, his son and his daughter-in-law could move into the house with them because that's where their life was to be. Everything was there. Also, their profession, for many of them, their, their, their gifting, their trade, the, the way they earned money was out of their home, whether it was through their fields or through their crops or whether it was through the things they made like carpentry or wood or whatever it happened to be. It was done in their home, their house, was their life. It wasn't a commodity they bought and sold. It, it was everything about them. And so Jesus is saying that these, these two men, they, they, they wanted to build a life. They wanted a, a life that was successful, a life that would last, a life that would weather the storms, a life that when they got old and looked back on, they could be proud of what they had accomplished. They could enjoy the, the fruits of their labor, the uh, house that they could, they could say, I'm, I'm proud of what I have built, this life that I have built, the family that I have. It's something they longed for, they dreamed about. And I think in the same way, most of us, right? I don't think there's any of us in this room, maybe there are, but I, I'm gonna assume there's none of us in this room that says, you know what? I hope to build a very unsuccessful life one day. If that's you, you can call our care pastor, John Cook. He would love to talk with you, uh, right? Like most of us, we wanna build a life that lasts, that is successful. 
The other thing about this story is that they both, because of the nature of the way construction would work in first century Palestine, his, his hearers, the, the people immediately hearing the words of Jesus would have known that most likely these two men were building the same style and kind of house. You see, the, 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 the Sea of Galilee where Jesus is preaching in this moment is kind of far removed from the, the hustle and bustle of the city of Jerusalem. Uh, The the city of Jerusalem, a lot of the buildings there would have been built out of stone or or rock or quarry or whatever that is. But the the people that live near the Sea of Galilee, it's more of a a rural community. It's more agrarian. And so they didn't have all of the the finer things that you might find in the city of Jerusalem. So for them, the homes would have been built of hard, kind of dried mud and clay. And we see other references to this in scripture, right? We see this in Mark chapter six, where it tells us, Jesus is telling that you can build something and thieves can, can kind of dig in and destroy and steal as they break through the house. We see this in Mark chapter two, where some friends, they have their, their paralyzed friend, their paralytic, and they, they dig a hole in the roof to lower him down in. They, they dig through the dried mud. And so Jesus's audience would have been hearing this and saying, yeah, these two guys, they, they wanna build a life. They wanna build this successful life and they all, they both are trying to build the same kind of house out of mud that's hardened and dry clay. In other words, from the outside, these two guys are building the same thing. They're building the same house, the same life, the same material. Outwardly, everything about them is very much the same. The second thing is they, they, they dreamed the same vision, but they also heard the same teaching. They heard the same teaching. Jesus says that both of them heard these words of mine. Jesus isn't saying one of these people uh, has never heard me before, so they don't know what to do. No, no, he's saying both of these guys have just set through the last three chapters, the longest sermon, the, the greatest sermon. They've heard what I've had to say. They've heard these words that I have spoken. Both of these guys have set under this teaching of mine. If it, was, if it was our modern context and Jesus was telling this story, he would say, listen, both of these guys, they wanna build a life and they're building the same life externally. They're building the same house. It's gonna look the same. But not only that, but they've set under the same teaching. They guys go to the same church. They're in the same small group. They read the same NIV or ESV translation of the Bible. They watch the same famous pastors online during their commute to work. These guys have heard the same teaching. They know these aren't people who don't believe. These are people who have professed outwardly to follow and love Jesus. So they, they, they dreamed the same vision, they heard the same teaching, and the, the last similarity is they faced the same storm. They faced the same storm. Jesus would have been incredibly familiar. Uh, most scholars would say that he's, he's preaching this sermon in the spring of the year 28 AD. And the springtime is kind of post-rainy season for the, for the nation of Israel, right, for Jerusalem. What would have happened is, for, to give you some context, the, the nation of Israel, Jerusalem, the city there, receives about 30 inches of rain a year. And you're like, that's great, what does that mean? Uh, London, for context, gives you 30 inches of rain a year as well. Here's the difference. London receives those 30 inches of rain over the course of 300 days throughout the year year. Jerusalem receives its 30 inches of rain in 45 days. So you you have this rainy season that goes from kind of November to February with 90% of the rain coming in the month of January or February. And so Jesus is standing up in the spring to an audience who has just lived through this rainy season. 
And they know that there's this drought coming ahead and it's gonna be dry. And what happens when it gets dry is the, the, the sand and the creek beds begin to, to, to dry out and get hard, but they realize that the rain will come again one day and when it does, it'll be like a flash flood, just like that. This thing that was empty and dry will be gushing with water and flowing all over again. And so Jesus tells them this storm came. And he doesn't tell them two storms came. He tells them a storm came. And he describes the storm the exact same. The, the winds came, the rain came, the waters rose, and the houses did this. And what you understand is that these two guys faced the same storm. In other words, they, they lived in the same area. They lived in the same neighborhood. So, so in, in summary, these two guys, outwardly, everything about them is the exact same. They're both trying to build this life, this, this successful, lasting life. They both are trying to build this house. They both are using the, the same strategy. They both are doing this, and they're both kind of making this thing that looks the exact same outwardly. They're going to the same church, hearing the same teaching, reading the same Bible, and they live in the same neighborhood. For all intents and purposes, outwardly, these two builders are the same person. Now, those are their similarities. Now, let's, let's look at some of their differences. The first one is this. They dreamed the same vision, but they had different plans on how to execute it. They both wanted to build a house. They both had this vision for their life, but they went about it differently. One of them built on rock. And it wasn't like this, this single rock. It's not like, I'm gonna use that as my cornerstone and the rest. No, no. it was this rocky outcropping, this, this, this ground that is hard and rugged with lots of rocks and lots of boulders. And it would have been a difficult work to build on the rock. They would have had to go in and hire day laborers and they would have had to remove and lift every boulder out of the way to make room on this rocky outcropping. In fact, in Luke, when he tells the passage, he doesn't say they built on the rock. He says they actually dug down deep into the rock. They, they, they dug down into it and made it level. You can imagine if those of you that have ever done any sort of construction, digging down deep into the rock is going to cost a lot more money. It's going to be a lot more work. It's going to be way less efficient. It's going to take way more time. It's going to be very, very difficult to, to level this land, to dig down in it, and to make everything perfect so that I can build a house on this. But that was his plan, his strategy. But the other guy, he says, man, that looks tough. Oh, look at this smooth, beautiful sand. And he says, that's nice and flat already. I don't have to dig down deep in that. I don't have to pay a bunch of day laborers. I don't have to waste a bunch of time, waste a bunch of money. I don't have to exert myself and get a lot of, I can just build on this. This is easy. This is quick. This is not near as hard and long and laborious as that. I'll settle for this. So they both wanted to build a house. One of them, his plan was to do the hard, deep work. The other took the easiest, simplest, cheapest route. Secondly, they, they both heard the same teaching, but they had different priorities. Jesus calls one of these people a wise person and the other person a fool. I love, uh, the, the Greek word for fool is actually moros, you can guess where we get a word from that. So, uh, like, uh, Jesus is just so cool, you guys. I don't, like, I don't know why you guys, some don't like him. But, like, so, <laughs> like, Jesus is literally like, hey, this guy's a wise man. This guy on the sand, he's a moron. <laughs> like, like, I love this, right? Jesus says, listen, they, they have two different priorities. And what does he mean by that? He says, this guy over here, the, the fool, the, the wise guy builds on the rock. He does the extra work. He does the hard things. The, the moron, the fool, looks at this and says, I can make that work. I can do this. Yeah, I mean, 
That's probably better. But you know what? It's dry. That's, that's hard saying. This will work great. I can make this work. This will look good. Proverbs 24.3 says it this way. By wisdom, a house or a life is built. And through understanding, it is established. We get this idea that both of these guys were smart. They're both, I mean, they're building a house. That's not an easy thing to do. They're intelligent people. They're smart people. But one is wise and one is foolish. What makes the foolish person foolish? A foolish person professes all the right things. They associate with all the right people. And as long as life goes smoothly, it is difficult to distinguish their house from the wise guy who built on the firm foundation. The foolish person can appear as if their life is together and others will admire it. But they're a fool. Why? Because their priority is quick, easy, cheap, and simple. They don't wanna do the work. They don't wanna dig down deep. They don't wanna take the extra effort. They don't wanna pay the extra money. Why? Because at the end of the day, the houses are gonna look the same why waste all this time and money? Just do that. Jesus says, that's the fool. And lastly, they were different because they faced the same, or they faced the same storm, but were different because they had different outcomes. They had different outcomes. One survived and the other collapsed. Why? One survived and the other collapsed. Why? Like I'm reminded of that picture of Galveston where there's just one house left standing. Why? Why, why, what made this, this, this builder over here who built his house, what made his house so good that when the storm came, it survived and lasted? And what made this one so bad, so foolish, that it disappeared and was in ruins? Why is it that two people or two families can go through the same difficult season, the same storm of life, and one can come out still standing while the other comes out in ruins. What is the defining difference? In verse 24, Jesus says this at the very beginning. He says, therefore, anyone who hears these words of mine and puts them into practice is like a wise man who built his house on the rock. Six, Luke 6, 46, why do you call me Lord, Lord, and do not do what I say? Jesus says the defining difference between the wise builder and the foolish builder, the, the defining difference between the person who builds the life that stands the test of time and the life that crumbles under the pressure and the strength is not profession of faith, remember, it is not that, no, no. The defining difference between these two in the parable of Jesus is that one of them heard what he said and actually did it. One of them took the word of God, took the teachings of Jesus and lived them out actively while the other heard it and went on and did the thing that he thought was most convenient and the easiest. Listen, Mount family. I could be wrong, but I think all of us wanna build a life that withstands the storms of life, that, that lasts through the seasons of difficulty, that leaves us feeling like we are strong and not washed away by the waves that come. And the only way to do that is to build our life on the rock, to build it on the rock. But how? How do we, how do we build it on the rock? How do, we, how do we build this life that survives the storms? How do we do that without coming out? Listen, I want you to lean in real close, okay? I'm gonna give you the, the answer here. You read what Jesus says and you do it. 
That's it. It's that simple. Jesus says, you want to build a life that lasts? Don't just hear what I have to say. Do it. Because if you only hear and don't do, you're the fool. It's about obedience. It's not about knowledge. Remember the context. Jesus has just finished three chapters and he's looking at people who are saying, Lord, 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 we believe in you. And he's saying, no, 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 no. In fact, the, the Hebrew word for hear is actually often translated the word obey. Because to a Jewish person, to simply hear something was pointless. You had to hear it and obey it for it to actually mean something. Jesus is saying, listen, listen, looking like you're listening is not enough. Living like you have it all together is not enough. Knowing what is right is not enough. To build our life on the rock, we must actually put into practice what he says. James 1.22 echoes it when it says this, do not merely listen to the word and so deceive yourselves, but do what it says. And so let me just ask you a question this morning. What is an area of your life where you are knowingly hearing but not obeying? What is an area of your life where you are knowingly hearing what scripture has for you and you're just disregarding and not obeying. Let me give you some examples from scripture, right? Just the last couple chapters that Jesus has been teaching. Jesus talks about anger and he says, listen, you've all been told that you don't, you don't murder someone, but guess what? If you are angry with someone in your heart, that is just as bad. He says, listen, you, you've been told do not commit adultery, but listen, guess what? If you, you know, lust after a man or a woman in your heart, that is just as bad. You, you've been told that you are to, you know, uh, you need to love your enemies. You need to turn the other cheek. You need to allow them. You need to, you need to pray for them when they do wrong to you. He talks about prayer and says prayer needs to be a lifestyle, a habit for us. He talks about living a life of generosity. He talks about not being anxious and not worrying. He talks about not judging others. And I'm not saying we, we, we can't struggle with these things, right? Like, like that's part of the, the sanctification process that we go through as believers, right? We're justified by Jesus on the cross, but we live a life of sanctification until we're finally with him in glorification in the future. But there's this process where sanctification means I'm willingly trying, I'm just stumbling and messing up. What Jesus is saying here is he's talking to the people, the foolish people are the people that hear what he has to say and says, yeah, I'm not doing that, it's like we, we pick up scripture and we say, okay, Jesus says this, I'll do that. He says this, I'll do that. He says that, ah, oh, that's, that's a lot of work. That's like building on rocky soil. That's, that's, that's a lot of boulders. I'm not gonna do that one. I'll do this one and I'll do this one. I won't do this one. And, and we, we've turned our spiritual life into this buffet where we get to pick and choose the things we wanna eat, the things we wanna be. And that's not what scripture says. Scripture says, listen, to be the wise builder, to be the person who builds your life on the rock, you have to do what scripture says you are to do. Let me give you a, an example from my life. There are plenty of these things I've already said where I, I stumble through and I mess up in. But there are also plenty of days where I come home and I know that Ephesians chapter five tells me that I am to love my wife the way that Christ loved the church. And I am to lay down my life for her and serve her. And I know that. But there are days when I come home and I don't want to. I wanna do what I wanna do. There are days where it's 10 o'clock at night and she wants to have a conversation and I just want to watch TV or I just want to go to bed or I just want to read a book and I knowingly don't lay down my life. Jesus says in those moments, I'm building a life on sand because I'm hearing what he says and I'm not stumbling. 
I'm intentionally choosing to disregard and disobey. What about you? What's an area in your life where you know what scripture says and you just don't wanna do it? You just don't care. Or it's too hard, it's too difficult, it it costs too much money, it's too much work and you just have to dig down too deep. There was a prophet in the Old Testament, a guy by the name of Ezekiel. He was a really cool prophet. Um, one of the things he did, he was speaking to this group of Israelites when they were in exile and they were you know, not in their country, they were prisoners somewhere else basically. And he's speaking to them and the group's listening to him and they're really enjoying the sermons that he gives, the messages. They're like, you know, like if it was a modern audience, they might be clapping every now and then or like, you know, mm, that's a good word, man. Yeah, that's a good word. They're taking notes, you know, or they're whatever. They're, they're, they're really into it. And, um, but the problem is they never intend to actually follow through. Look at what Ezekiel 33, 30 says this. It says, and as for you, so this is, this is God talking to Ezekiel. He says, as for you, son of man, your people are talking together about you by the walls and at the doors of the houses, saying to each other, come and hear the message that the Lord, that has come from the Lord. So they're like, hey, you gotta come hear this preacher. Come hear this dude. This dude is killing it. He's rocking it. Come listen to what this guy has to say. Verse 31, my people come to you as they usually do and sit before you to hear your words, but they do not put them into practice. Their mouths speak of love, but their hearts are greedy for unjust gain. Indeed, to them you are nothing more than one who sings love songs with a beautiful voice and plays an instrument well. Why? For they hear your words and they do not put them into practice. In other words, they were happy to come to church but had no intention of living it out. My prayer is that is not you. That is not a life built on the rock. Let me me, me explain it this way. Maybe you're wondering like, why does this matter so much, Adam? Like it's it's obedience, right? Like why does it matter? Let Let me explain it this way. Like there was a sociologist in the 1970s his name was Peter Berger. And Peter Berger was a sociologist who decided, he was a, a secular sociologist, so he didn't believe in Jesus at all. And he decided, I'm gonna study faith and I'm gonna study religion. And what I wanna know is why do people believe? And he came up with this really big academic term called plausibility structures. Now, a plausibility structure is basically a fancy word of saying that there are structures, hence this, there are structures in life that those structures are what allow us to believe in faith or to believe in religion. They make it plausible or believable. Does that make sense? And so some of those examples might be, Peter Berger would say like, maybe you grew up, this could be your plausibility structure, you grew up in a home where mom and dad really, really loved Jesus and they took you to church. And mom and dad also though had a really, really good life. And so now that you're older, you're like, hey, you know what? I want a good life like mom and dad. I want a life that's kind of like them. Therefore, they got that good life from going to church. Therefore, I'm going to go to church as well. Or maybe for you, the plausibility structure could be your kids. You're like, you know what? I didn't really have like the best childhood in the world, but I want my kids to experience some of the joys that come with church, some of the blessings, some of the, the moral right and wrong that can come from absolute truth. And so I'm gonna, I'm gonna take them to church. And so what you do is you create these structures. Now, Here's the problem with these plausibility structures, is what happens, like, like let's take the first example, right? Mom and dad grew up in church, you, you went with them, and therefore they had a happy life, so therefore you must, you know, you go to church hoping you'll have a happy life that they do. What happens though if one day mom and dad get divorced? Your faith, well maybe I, maybe I was wrong about this whole God thing. 
Maybe I, I missed something. Or maybe your, your plausibility structure is your kids, and you're like, you know what, God, you're really doing something with my kids, and I want them to be in church, and all of a sudden, one of your kids gets sick. And it crumbles. Here's the, here's the problem with these plausibility structures, is that we begin to build our lives around them as if they are the thing that's gonna hold everything together. And we can say, okay, as long as, you know, as, long as mom and dad are okay, I'll praise Jesus. As long as my kids are okay, I'll praise Jesus. As long as my career is good, I'll praise Jesus. As long as my finances are taken care of, I'll praise Jesus. As long as X, Y, or Z, whatever the structure is from you, as long as this happens, I will praise Jesus. But here's the reality that comes from life. Every single one of these structures at some point in your life will fail you. None of them are good long enough. A storm will come and one of them will fall. But here's what I know in Colossians. It says that before the beginning of time, there was one who all things were created through him, for him, and by him. And he holds everything together. Listen, why does it matter that you obey the commands of Jesus? Because when you obey him, a cycle happens. When you begin to say, you know what? I'm gonna lean in, Jesus, and I'm gonna do what you say. All of a sudden, you begin to experience blessings in your life because he's holding all things together. And as he holds all those things together, you in turn feel the, the peace, the patience, the goodness, the, the fruits of the spirit that come from obedience and following him. And those in turn cause you to go back to him and say, Jesus, as I do what you ask me to do, I experience these blessings. Therefore, my nature wants to do more. The reward system in my brain says, I will do more of these things to get more of the blessings you have for me. And what you find is over time, the more and more obedient you are to Jesus, the more and more intimate you are with Jesus. And Jesus knew this. And he said, listen, it's not about some legalistic behavior. Build your life on obedience to me because then you'll be so close to me that when a storm comes, when difficulties arise, when all the other houses fail, I can hold all things together. Now, here's the hard part. You have to build your foundation before the storm comes. It's like, you ever told somebody in their 20s, like, hey, you're getting ready to have a kid, like, save money before you have a kid. Nobody does that. Like, they, they come nine months later, they're like, we didn't know we were pregnant, what happened all of a sudden? And it just catches up on us. Like, it doesn't happen like that, right? Like, th this is one of those messages where it's like, I'm telling you, like, listen, the storm is going to come. It is going to come and it is going to be hard and you are going to have seasons in your life where all those pieces begin to fall and begin to crumble. And what are you gonna do if you haven't built your foundation first? You're gonna pick up the phone and you're gonna call the most spiritual person you know and you're gonna say, hey, I need your help. My career is failing, my kids are failing, my parents are failing, whatever this plausibility structure, it's failing. I need your help. Can you help me build my foundation? But guess what? You can't build a new foundation in the middle of a hurricane. You have to build it ahead of time. You have to do the hard work to dig down deep into the rock and say, Jesus, what do you want from my life? And I wanna follow you and live for you and obey you. And I will build a foundation knowing that one day difficulty will come and you will bring pain and you will bring suffering and you will bring tragedy in my life. But I am so deep in the rock with you that you will hold all things together. Church. What's your foundation? You can't change your foundation when your marriage is crumbling. 
You can't change your foundation when your kid's in the hospital. You can't change your foundation when you're finally caught and busted for the thing you were afraid of. What's your foundation? Here's what I know, that you and I as human beings, when we try to build our own lives, we are really bad builders. But there is a God who 2,000 years ago looked at our mess and said, you know what? I can fix that. And he sent his son Jesus into the world to die for us so that all these things that we think have value and worth and significance, he could remove them and put himself in their place. Church, your life will only stand if Jesus is at the center. Maybe, just maybe, you've been building a life on sandy soil. Start building a new foundation. Begin to do the things that Jesus says to do. Let's pray. Father God, we are thankful that you are a God who uses stories through your son to speak to us, to, to teach us things. God, this morning I confess, and I, I think I echo a lot of us, I confess that there are times where I don't want to do what you say. I want to do my selfish thing. God, this morning, help us be people who build a foundation of obedience on you, knowing that you will hold all things together. This morning, as we continue praying, maybe you're here joining us, or maybe you're in Fredericksburg or joining us online, and if you were honest, you would say, man, you've been trying to build this life all on your own, and you are making a mess of it. You are a, a bad builder. You, you are stacking pieces left and right, hoping, just hoping that something will be successful, but it always fails, it always crumbles, it always falls apart. Can I just say, that is okay. That is why Jesus died for you, so that you could stop trying. You could stop being burned out. You could stop all the hustle and bustle of building a successful life and instead turn to him and allow him to build it for you. Jesus says, come to me, all who are weary, heavy burdened. This morning, maybe you need to turn and come to Jesus for the first time and say, Jesus, build my life. Be the center of everything. In this moment with our, our eyes closed and heads still bowed, if, if that's you, would you just, wherever you are, whatever campus, would you just slip up your hand right where you are? A, a couple hands up. If you've got your hand up, I'm just gonna ask you to leave it for just a second. On all of our campuses and online, we've got different prayer people who will come around and they, they, they've got a thing they wanna give you, just a little card to help you begin to take that next step with Jesus. And they wanna pray with you as you begin this new life of following Jesus for the first time. Because God, you are the center of everything. You hold all things together. And God's people said, amen. Church, let's stand and celebrate and worship a God who changes lives.